Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And joining us on the phone today are Vice President and Principal Analyst Jeff Pollard and Principal Analyst Chase Cunningham to discuss the current state of threat and the emergence of zero trust as a big thing in the market. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So zero trust emerged eight years ago and is now coming into the forefront of security thinking. Why is that? Uh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll chime in on my sort of thought there. And I, I think really the, the difference being uh, for the longest time, zero trust was referenced as kind of this uh, prophetic thing that you subscribe to. And it was kind of this, you know, Zen approach to, to doing security uh, with a more focus on micro, et cetera, et cetera. And what we did this year was we worked really hard to formalize, in our opinion, how to actually enable zero trust using vendor tools and technologies. We published a wave on it uh, and, and really trying to add a concrete approach um, to doing zero trust. So I think that was the, the difference maker is, you know, for a long time it had just been talking about it, and now it is moving into how to do it. And has the nature of the threat changed that has put a, a finer point on people's interest in, in zero trust? Uh, this chase again, and I, I don't think the threat has really changed at all. That's something that, that kind of came up during this whole year around formalizing zero trust was it's not that, in my, in my opinion, that the, the bad guys that really changed tactics or whatever, and this is where we maneuvered the model a little bit to be around sort of focusing on what we're coining as next generation access uh, because the network is going to be where electrons are moved around, and that's kind of where the, the battle is fought, if you will. Um, but if you look at the history of where bad guys attack and what they go after, the first thing they go after is the users and people. So, in, you know, in our opinion, if you can focus on taking care of uh, the workforce and users and start there, you're actually doing zero trust um, at, at a granular level and, and solving the problem where it lies. Something I do want to add to what Chase said, I think one of the big things, as he mentioned, is that we moved from zero trust being an aspirational uh, model or aspirational idea into something that can be deployed at scale in production. And that's something that we've really emphasized in our research this year. I think the other thing that happened that really forced security and risk pros to start to assess and evaluate their architectural approach is frankly just tired of seeing the bad guys win over and over and over again. So even if you're skeptical about zero trust, right, even if someone was skeptical over the last five or eight years about whether or not zero trust would work, when you continually see bad guys win, and they win, as Chase pointed out, with very similar tactics, right, it's spear phishing emails, it's OWASP top 10 attacks against applications, when you constantly see that happen, at some point, you just get fatigued from it, and it really does start to surface the fact that you need a different and a new approach to how you tackle your security problems, including your security architecture, including your security strategy. And I think that has also been something that has led to folks being willing to explore a new architectural approach that years ago they may not have been willing to because it was too different, but now they see the need for it. And how does the world change or does the world change, um, whether it's due to nationalism, trade wars, or more sophisticated tools or whatever it might be, do the motivations of cyber war, the participants in that war, the economic aims of that war, does that change the landscape at all? Or is it just, to your point, you know, actors with the same methods? 
Well, when you think about tools, tactics, and procedures, really the methods, what we've seen is that attackers don't have to be that advanced to be successful. But I do think part of the point you made there is right on because the motivation or the intent for an attacker, especially a nation state, absolutely does change. And that's something that we covered in our predictions report for 2019, especially focused on deteriorating conditions and relationships between the United States and China. Uh, back in 2015, 2016, when President Obama uh, in the United States and President Xi in China signed the agreement that effectively sort of made um, intellectual property espionage or intellectual property cyber espionage um, uh, less of uh, less of, a, of an initiative uh, from China's perspective, uh, you know, threat intelligence companies, incident response uh, vendors, um, us and our research, we all saw that uh, China's activity decreased specifically in terms of targeting the United States. Um, with the recent emergence of the trade war, the tensions between the Trump administration and President Xi's administration and China, what we're now seeing is that Chinese um, army activity has increased substantially as a result of that. And so from a U.S. perspective, we're now seeing China back on the main stage as one of the cyber adversaries. That doesn't mean that the other folks haven't continued to hack. Iran is still a problem. Um, Russia is obviously still a problem on both the influence operations front and cyber espionage. But at the same time, we're seeing a reemergence of these adversaries, especially with the rise of globalism, um, or I should say the rise of populism and, and a trade-off of globalism. You know, we're seeing these geopolitical and trade tensions influence the overall uh, presence of nation-state actors, most specifically their motivation and intent in terms of why they're hacking someone or who they're hacking uh, has definitely changed. And the issue is not doing damage. The issue is obtaining IP, obtaining information that allows us to have some economic advantage doing some financial damage. So this is the concept of it's not sort of a warfare that's strictly among governments. This is now brought into the broader commercial space because that's where the IP lay and that's where the financials lay. That's right. But I think that what you have to append to that, and this is something that Chase and I, along with Nick Hayes, uncovered in some recent research we did on influence operations, it does depend on how you define damage. And one of the things that we're now seeing happen is that the kind of influence operations that were used to tamper with the 2016 election, and, and more specifically, the kinds of attacks and allegations that were once reserved for politicians, right? We're now seeing those same kinds of unsubstantiated um, attacks now being aimed at companies as influence operations tied to nation state aims, right? And nation state um, intent are now beginning to target companies. And the issue there is that while that doesn't fit maybe the conventional definition of damage from a cyber perspective, right, data being stolen and exfiltrated, I think that it absolutely does fit the definition of damage in terms of brand and reputation that companies are dealing with. Uh, so I think one of the biggest things that's happening now is that there is a real convergence out there between cyber warfare being used primarily to steal intellectual property, perhaps for economic espionage, and now also being used as a mechanism to damage brand and reputation. So as you say, that there was a focus on critical infrastructure, which will bring in things like utilities. There was a focus on that which creates the economic engine of the nations that would bring in banks. 
and probably that that creates sort of strategically valuable IP, let's say high tech. So as you look at 2019, are there industries that you see as more vulnerable than before for whatever reasons uh, exist? Definitely. Utilities being one of the most prominent that will be faced with an attack due to the information that they're gathering. Uh, so if you go by sort of what Willie Sutton used to say, right, you rob the banks because that's where the money is. Well, now what's happening is that we've seen attacks to gain information from data aggregators, folks like Equifax, right, Experian and the other um, credit reporting agencies. We've seen attacks on financial services to get access to account data. We've seen attacks on um, on other sites to get access to usernames, passwords and credentials. But now what's happening with the combination of connected devices and smart meters, especially Utilities are now connect are, are now collecting more information about the users of that particular utility service than we've seen before. And so what's happening is now attackers are now putting a bullseye on utilities because again, that's where the data is, right? So if you've already harvested it from data aggregators, you've already are harvested it from healthcare or financial services, as we've seen in years past. Well, why not turn to the new data collector, which in this case is utilities because of some of those technology factors. Chase, I think you've probably got some uh, perspective on this as well from maybe the public sector government side. Yeah, uh, I, I think the, the industry, honestly, that is the most woefully behind the curve on this whole thing is the legal industry. Um, if you think of, you know, from the bad guy's perspective, like where is a – a hacker's sort of perfect place to get information that they could use for all kinds of, you know, malicious activities, be they nation state or be they script kitty. Uh, law firms would be, you know, number two with a bullet, in my opinion. And when you get into, you know, requirements and legislation and the push from the federal government and everything else that everyone's sort of focusing on, no one talks about law firms and no one talks about legal data. But uh, you know, Mosec on second and some of these other big issues that have occurred in the last few years have showed us that it is um, a valid target. And, you know, the, uh, the the lockdown of the financial industries and sort of the work going on in healthcare means that the bad guys will shift their tactics to go after easier targets. And uh, I, I personally think that that is uh, legal firms and law firms writ large. And the federal government needs to do something to start putting requirements in place to mandate that, you know, these legal firms get after it. So it, in all those industries, including legal, they're all going through some form of digital transformation or digital, you name the word. The threat surface is increasing intentionally as they digitize assets and use data strategically. So so as they think of that and they think of the threat from the inside and the outside, where where is the government as it relates to zero trust, either by putting, to your point, Chase, putting in some guidelines, guidance, or whatever that whatever means they have to spur industry to move? So, yeah, I spent all summer doing, you know, work on Capitol Hill and, and getting in people's offices and really talking about zero trust and seeing where that resonated. And interestingly enough, uh, in the last month or so, a bunch of agency-level leaders got in the room and, and uh, the, the stuff that came out of that closed procession to my ears was that they are working on establishing zero trust as being the singular strategic initiative for those federal networks for the next few years. And uh, anytime you can get that many people from that many agencies in any room to collaborate and do something with a singular focus is, is definitely worthy of note. So um, it's, it's very, very interesting that they are diving into that, and this is uh, where they see the, the benefit coming from. And 
And the thing I point out is, or I'd like to point out on the, the federal side is the reason this strategy is resonating with them is if you're in the DOD every three years or four, depending on if you're, you know, Congress or whoever or military or whatever, you have new leadership coming in just by the, the machinations of the business. Uh, and they keep having to reconfigure their, you know, scenarios and their plan and their strategy every time someone new comes in. The reason zero trust uh, is, is taking hold there is they want to say this is our strategy for the long term and we will do it for the next X number of years regardless of who the new leadership comes in. This is what we're doing and this is where we're going. And those new leaders may have changes and variances and sort of twists on the narrative, but they will subscribe to this particular strategy. And I think it's going to be a big difference maker um, in that space. And so does that mean that that strategy will then trickle down to industry? How is that connection made in terms of what's happening at the federal level and then, you know, what's happening within these key industries that we identified as being at risk? Well, we, yeah, unfortunately we have kind of a, a, a problem in this space, in my opinion, because um, the federal government, if you really look at where the sort of lead is, has been coming for the last X number of years on actually doing cybersecurity, it's been the Fed, whether people want to realize it or not. They're the ones that establish the criteria. They're the ones with the frameworks. They're the ones with the requirements. So we honestly should be continuing to allow them to set strategy and move you know, forward intelligently, but we have this issue of states coming up with their own requirements now that are skewing the message and skewing the strategic goals that people are trying to put in place. So unfortunately, um, I, I, I see what's coming as being uh, sort of a, a fight between state-level governments on how to do cyber uh, without a whole lot of forethinking and strategy, to be honest with you, and then you have the federal government, DOD, that are looking forward and working towards actually being, you know, strategic. So it's going to um, be problematic. And uh, you've seen recent stuff coming around from California, New York, and other states saying, well, this is our requirement for data. Okay, well, data plays into cyber. So um, it's, it's definitely becoming a bit more mixed up. Are the differences sort of the perception of threat? Are the differences the protection of citizens are more political in nature? Are they budget well, the budgetary in nature? What's causing those differences to take place, and how durable are those are those differences? Well, my my quick point on this, and because I'd love to get Jeff's thought, is is really that uh, the states are focused mainly on. I mean, they're, they're the laggers in this instance, right? The states are just finally becoming aware that they have to do something about cyber, be it. Uh, data protection or privacy or critical infrastructure or whatever, um, you know, 2020, all of a sudden the states have started to wake up and say, oh, God, we got to do something about this, whereas the Fed has been doing this for the last 20 years. And, um, you know, to be perfectly frank, when you're going into combat, you want people that have been in the trenches running things. You don't want folks that just, like, showed up on the battlefield in their shiny new outfit to tell you how to do stuff. Yeah, I think to Chase's point, you know, so I think we've definitely seen that trickle-down security works, despite trickle-down economics, perhaps not. Uh, but what's maybe even more interesting than that, or at least something that's incredibly influential that's occurring right now, and it, and it actually creates a real opportunity for the security industry, is that there's so much momentum behind zero trust, not just at the federal level, as Chase mentioned, in terms of being a massive um, influence 
But we're also seeing this from uh, security vendors, product companies, and security companies. And this goes to the to the zero trust wave that Chase mentioned earlier. Uh, we finally have content now that looks at um, security vendors and whether or not they actually allow you to um, build and create zero trust capabilities for your organization. But we're also seeing companies like Google with Beyond Corp that um, has published information about how they've implemented zero trust techniques at scale, right? And if Google can do it, then other enterprises can as well. And with Google doing it, with the federal government, and then with security vendors also latching on to zero trust, I think one of the things that's great for security practitioners and security and risk pros out there is that they no longer have to go out on a limb or experiment in order to understand and utilize zero trust now what's happening is there is a convergence out there of these various influences and pockets of technology and government and others that are coming together and creating an opportunity for them to align themselves with zero trust. And we haven't seen that before in the cybersecurity industry. We just haven't seen where government and industry um, and, and even, you know, sort of non-security companies are all aligned in terms of their mission and their objective. And so if we use this opportunity the right way, then we can absolutely improve the posture overall um, of a lot of different industries out there. And so I hope we're able to exploit that. So I, I want to get to the why of the momentum. Why is zero trust different? I, I always think about it this way, and then, and then I'll defer to Chase. I always think the reason why zero trust is so different is because it doesn't require you to ever make the assumption that something is okay in your environment, right? The, the entire premise says it. it's zero trust. It doesn't matter where someone is. Um, it doesn't matter what someone is doing. It doesn't matter if they have access to A or B. You're not implicitly trusted because you happen to be there to get access to C, right? Things have to be specified and explicit. And that, to me, is the most powerful part of it, right? You're never trying to get to a place where you trust anything because you're always operating from uh, an area that something has to prove to you it's okay before you allow it to happen. And that is the exact opposite of how our environments have worked in the past. If you were at the home office, you could access everything. If you could touch one server, you could touch another. Um, and, and zero trust just does away with that. Chase, any, any thoughts from you? I'll say this fundamentally categorically, like the industry has technically solved security. There's 500 plus vendors at RSA, like there are not 500 problems in security to solve. It's really just been an issue of how to apply that technology in a uh, cohesive strategy to, uh, to address the issues where they're actually valid and, and not just chasing shiny objects. And what seems to be the difference maker when people get into zero trust is uh, you can you can say that this stuff is mapping to this strategy rather than we're doing security. Um, if I had a you know a dollar for every advisory or workshop I've been on where people said their security strategy was some version of protect, detect, respond, recover, whatever, uh, or you know we're going to be compliant with NIST or CSF or blah blah blah, um, I wouldn't have to be you know working anymore. But when you look at every organization that's also been owned over the last decade. That was their strategy, and they threw a lot of technology at the issue. They didn't back up and say, this is what we're doing, this is why, everyone fall in line, and oh, by the way, vendors, now your technology has to align with what I'm doing. I, I imagine there's got to be a different way of thinking of budgeting 
thinking of its prominence in the prioritization of those budgets, how they're allocated, because you're sort of accepting a different threat level just by jumping into the zero trust pool. Um, I, I agree with you. And I, I think that my, my two cents on that would be that I, when I talk to people about zero trust, I tell them, like, I'm really not necessarily worried about the threat side of this equation. And that seems counterintuitive. But what I really mean by that is if I've done the right things strategically with the right technologies and I've got things segmented the way they ought to be and I don't trust anything, then I know that there will be threats, but I'm not really chasing the threat. I'm chasing the right way to architect stuff based on the needs of the business, and I'm focusing on fixing what I can fix and responding to the problem. I'm not just focusing on the threat. Like, the threat exists, bad stuff happens. You can't win the fight by continuing to chase the bad guy, you know, around the the building. And security budgets have continued to go up year over year over year, And it is a reasonable question that I deal with in my research, especially since I do focus on on security budgets. It's a reasonable question for other leaders inside the organization to say, we're continuing to spend more and more on security, and every year you ask for more and more money, right? What are we doing? Well, defense in depth, which used to be sort of this, you know, uh, combination of different you know, technologies and processes where you would make sure if one thing failed, you had something else to back it up. And that way, um, if it bypassed control A, control B would stop it or at least alert you to it. What wound up happening, to Chase's point about shiny objects, is that defense in-depth turned into expense in-depth. And all of a sudden, we continued to throw piles of money at this problem, but we were throwing piles of money on that problem with a network architecture that was 10 years old, right? Our environment wasn't segmented. Uh, we didn't have clear identity and access management. Uh, we didn't have asset management. We didn't understand what our systems were. We didn't even know what our critical systems were. Um, so we were effectively layering security technologies on top of this environment that was filled with security debt where we didn't know about it. We didn't always know what was there. We didn't necessarily know how to respond to it. And so because of that, what ultimately happened is that our architecture, our strategy was in a way, you know, sort of shooting ourselves in the foot because we were applying it to this environment that was built inherently to not be secure, right, or to have sort of best effort security. Um, Zero Trust flips that that on its head because Zero Trust takes it and says, I'm never going to be able to trust my environment, right? And so because of that, I have to architect it in a way that allows me to minimize, restrict, and use context before I decide if someone can get somewhere or to something, and all of that information factors in. So fundamentally, the way that we threw money at problems in the past didn't work because we were building on a bad foundation. Zero trust is a way to, uh, to rebuild that foundation and then to start spending in a totally different way so that you are not, um, you're not ultimately on a shaky foundation anymore. Yeah, so there's sort of this dark thought of, you know, this, these, these big bang moments – will bring cash to the table. But avoiding the big bang moments is a pretty unglamorous thing. It's it so your but your but your argument is that 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 not budgeting for the event horizon but actually budgeting to avoid the event horizon or to avoid all that disruption that goes along with it that the leadership is falling in not waiting for the for the you know the bombs to go off if you will. Well, yeah, and and you can't anymore, right? Because um, when you look at, at companies out there, um, there are companies that have and will survive a breach. You, you absolutely can do it. Um, 
now how you respond to a breach matters in terms of um, how how quickly you can identify what happened, how quickly you can transmit that information, how transparent you are with your customers. But something Heidi Shea talked about a lot uh, is is using you know a data breach as an opportunity to engage with your users, with your customers. In fact, she's working on research about that right now that'll be out in Q1. Um, if you think about that, it means that the way that you respond to a breach is ultimately a part of the way that you engage with your customers, and it shows how much you respect your customers. Uh, and so because of that, um, waiting for that big event and using fatalistic and apocalyptic sort of descriptions of what's going to happen to your company when it occurs, um, that can happen. It has happened, but it isn't what happens every day. And what Zero Trust allows you to do is think about your environment in terms of resilience and minimization so that when it occurs, and it probably will, you can be fast and you can be transparent and you can be honest and you can treat your customers with the respect that they deserve because you built an architecture from a security standpoint that allows you to address all of those things quickly and fairly and transparently. So you've said the word trust and earlier, um, Jeff, you commented that as part of the allure to the hacker is not necessarily the immediate financial, but actually damaging the brand, the brand valuation of a company. So could you walk through that? Because I think that's an important add to this conversation because we often think of a hack as a financial or data exercise versus a more sort of insipid but subtle attack on the brand equity itself. Yeah. So we, we've seen this recently. Um, it, you know, a few months ago, Starbucks went through um, a, a very sort of controversial period. And without going into specifics of, of that issue, because it, it's obviously pretty well known, um, what we did see is that some of the same botnets on social media that were involved in spreading messages about um, the 2016 election, the, the political campaigns and things that were spewing out distorted information and then amplifying that information on social media, those same botnets came alive to amplify the controversy related to um, Starbucks uh, when, when that occurred, right? And so we're seeing that more and more often now where damaging brand and reputation, whether it's distorting uh, something that occurred, amplifying that is an absolute goal of attackers. Uh, one, because perhaps the stock price dips and maybe there are short sales, right? So there's a way to directly monetize that. Um, but more than that, let's say that you're operating in a country um, and one of your state-owned enterprises, right, or one of the companies headquartered in your country is competing with a company headquartered in another country. And the company that you're competing with that's headquartered in that other country um, suddenly experiences something that is embarrassing, or maybe they don't experience it at all, right? You completely fake it with sort of fake video or um, a fake uh, a Photoshop chat or something else. And you can then spread that message and weaken that company, again, their stock price, their reputation, um, the, the sort of um, you know, social temperature of, of folks that are interested in that company. If you can do those things, then you've now put the company that's headquartered in your country ahead of the other company, right, by some metric that you decide. That's an example of where we're now seeing, um, you know, botnets and, and other threat actors out there what they're really trying to do now is distort the truth and believability of images and video and things that are out there um, on the Internet today 
And that is something that can harm your company because we've seen it happen. And I think our, our comment about 2019 is that we expect a brand who's not prepared to actually take a serious hit on valuation because of the hit on the brand. I mean, this, this we think is going to happen. 100% it will happen because we now understand the economic incentives that exist for an attacker to do that, right? The path to monetization of a, um, of a sort of influence operation against the company is there, right? Again, stock price and short sale is one of the easiest. Now that that economic incentive exists, then all it takes is interest, right, and opportunity. And given the amount of importance that companies place on social media to their brand and to their reputation, that becomes the perfect um, sort of uh, ground for this to occur. So absolutely, now that the economics are worked out, it's just a question of opportunity, and so much of that is available. So we've looked at the threat we see the ascendancy of zero trust. We see the pragmatism of zero trust. The tools are there. Uh, Chase, you put a wave out that, that sort of signals that providers are coming to the game with better tools and methods able to deliver. So how do you see 2019 unfolding? And even if you want to, to, to sort of extend that into 2020. Uh, well, so I, I see zero trust as becoming a, a much larger industry initiative. I tell people during speeches and things that I think we see a, a movement starting to emerge around this. Um, the Fed's on it. Uh, industry's on it. We are working hard. We have LinkedIn groups about it. Uh, it's the number two topic for submission at RSA for 2019. Um, I, I think that it's going to be a really, really big piece of uh, industry initiative over the next year or two. Uh, and what I, I'm hoping that I see out of that is that uh, there starts to be a sort of standardization of how people talk about it. Uh, and I, I, I would also hope that we start moving away from the threat mongering writ large um, because we, we, we all know the threat is there. We know the reality of the uh, danger that's uh, out there. But, you know, the, the change in strategic approaches and aligning technology uh, to the strategy is, is where where things seem to be going. And um, I, I, I think that zero trust is going to continue um, to, to take off like a rocket, honestly, over the next few years. So my, my view of the future um, is is perhaps permanently a, a bit more dystopian um, than, than some of my colleagues. Uh, you know, I, I make sure that my tinfoil hat is always in my carry-on bag. Uh, it, you know, I... I think that the momentum behind zero trust gives me more hope than I've had in recent years. The reason why I'm I'm cautious about that is because I also think as much momentum as zero trust has, we need that to continue. It has to continue because we've, we've never had as much at stake than we have now, and that's only going to continue We've got more software, more applications, more code being committed every day. We have more data being collected by more companies in more regions than ever before. We have more governments becoming um, surveillance states. We have heightened geopolitical tensions between, you know, once allies, right? We have um, populism increasing, radicalism increasing of all sorts. And so because of that, the threat is what it's always been, but at the same time, what is at stake is so much more um, important than it's ever been, and it's so much bigger than it's ever been in terms of the consequences that can emerge if we get this wrong. And so in many ways, I, I really have a lot of hopes 
um, tacked on to zero trust because I do think it's the right way to solve a lot of these problems. And I think that these problems are only getting bigger. And so if we don't have something that solves them, the world doesn't look great in 2019 and 2020. So my hope for zero trust is really that it's the right answer that's emerging at the right time. And we need it now more than ever. So kind of like high stakes and dark places lead us to zero kind of thing. Exactly right. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Forrester's 2019 predictions are here. Download the guide at forcom slash predictions 2019 to uncover the major dynamics that will impact your business in the coming year. Again, that's forrcom slash predictions 2019. Thanks for listening. Thank you.